Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Amber Scora. Amber's a writer living in Brooklyn, New York. Her articles have been published in the New York Times, The Believer, The Globe and Mail, and USA Today. Prior to coming to New York, she lived in Shanghai, where she was creator and host of the podcast Dear Amber, The Insider's Guide to Everything China, Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion, and Finding a Life is her first book. Welcome, Amber. Wow, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here, Cheryl. It's a pleasure, and I I just want to start by saying I appreciated your book for many reasons, one of which is it's beautiful writing. Uh, I I really enjoyed reading it as a reader. Um, So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The second thing that was so uh, captivating is that you know, all of us run into Jehovah's Witness. That you can't live in the U.S. and not encounter Jehovah's Witnesses on your porch, on the corner. You know, in many. Yeah, di- but so but I but uh, seeing inside of that religion fr- through your eyes was very compelling, and gave me a much deeper understanding. So thank you for that too. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. It's funny because I'm always amazed how much Jehovah's are present sort of in the culture in North America, but yet so many people don't, they will say, as you did, that they don't know much about them. Right. And, and you know, I, my father was a minister. I, ha- I have a pretty good, uh, who, by the way, actually told me once that he was at his basis uh, an agnostic <laughs> but in any case he, yeah he gave me a pretty good understanding of different religions but there's a, a kind of a of a um a screen i think that many of us have about the witness um but i i thought we could start you know before you left you believed and uh, that's what makes the story of you finding your exit uh, so much a grief story in my mind. Uh, so could you talk about what it was like to be in and what you believed in and then what began to uh, send you another direction? Sure. Yeah, as a Jehovah's Witness, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness, and um, it is quite a close community, and while, yes, we still have jobs out in the real world, um, we only associate with the world outside to the extent that is necessary to just, you know, earn a basic living or to preach to people. So, um, growing up, that would mean that you, well, most people know Jehovah's don't celebrate birthdays and Christmas, um, but we also didn't get involved in too many school activities, definitely nothing extracurricular, because Basically, um, the core belief of the Jehovah's is that they are the true religion, um, which many religions think about themselves, I think, um, that 
even further, a step further, is that they believe that Armageddon is coming any day. They've been saying for 100 years, teaching that Armageddon is just around the corner. Um, and therefore, when you believe the world is ending, uh, it kind of informs your entire worldview. The secondary part of this belief in Armageddon is that they also believe that they, Jehovah's Witnesses are the only ones who will survive this end-of-the-world apocalypse. Um, anyone who doesn't convert to being a Jehovah's Witness will be destroyed at Armageddon by God. Ultimately, they think of this Armageddon as like a sort of cleansing of the earth. And then after Armageddon, Jehovah's Witnesses will go on to live in paradise. Essentially, like the original Adam and Eve paradise will be restored by God and the earth will be populated with only Jehovah's Witnesses after that. So when that's your worldview, um, for one thing, that's what informs our preaching work because our main mission is to try to save as many people's lives as we can. So that's why you see Jehovah's Witnesses everywhere because if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're definitely a true believer because it takes a lot of commitment to be a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> for sure. And their ultimate goal is just, yeah, like their goal is good. You, if you think the world is ending and you're trying to save people, you think you're doing a good work. So that's like a, a very big thing. Um, but also this belief that the world is ending and, uh, also kind of creates a lot of other byproducts, which is one of which is that they tell you don't go to college because why would you get distracted? You need to just stay preaching and stay focused. Um, you wouldn't get a career because why would you waste your time putting, you know, effort in, in that rather than preaching? Um, also, even with regards to they have a belief that you shouldn't take blood transfusions, they've pulled a scripture out of the Bible that says this. And the reason why this belief, you know, to me now, it seems like terrifying that I would ever have been, you know, indoctr- indoctrinated in something to the point where I would let my own child die if they needed a life-saving blood transfusion. But the reason why for Jehovah's Witnesses that feels acceptable, although sad, is that the child would be resurrected. And the most important thing is that you die faithful to the tenets of the religion. Therefore, you can live forever. So it's like, it's quite, uh, the reason why I think you, as you say, there's sort of like a screen between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the outside world is that that's almost like a, a barrier that they've created because it's very helpful when you're in a group like this to have the other. Like, it gives the group more of an identity when you um, have a strong set of beliefs and there's no in-between. There's no gray area. It's black and it's white. There's right and wrong. There's in or out. So when you leave the group, the consequence of that, as you say, is that you suffer a great loss. Um, you're put outside of the community. You, that means you know, you've built your life around this community, so you yes. lose all of your friends, all of your family, if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, um, all of your connections. Very often Jehovah's Witnesses work together. So it could be losing your job or your own business. <clears throat> and uh, essentially just losing your identity, too, because um, when you're wrapped up in this sort of idea of who you are, the chosen one, approved by God, um, brothers and sisters with this entire global community, you're walking away from basically everything when you leave it. it it's, it's interesting. This is such a different circumstance but similar to I know so many uh, people who have come out as LGBTQ who've Mm -hmm. been uh, completely cut off from their previous community Uh, I'm thinking of one guy I know who was the music minister in his church and his mom found out he was early 20s I think and um, 
they went to service. He played the whole service, and afterwards, uh, his stuff was there, and she said, goodbye, you can never come back. Yeah, um, because she had discovered, it's really you know, it's it's such a stark uh, shunning is such a stark experience, such a traumatic experience. Uh, it sounds like there yeah, was more is. that led up to that for you, uh, though. Yeah, you, <laughs> you had a few different um, chinks in the armor before it, you eventually did leave. Or I guess yeah, were thrown that, out at the end. Yeah. So how that happened was I was you know, very zealous for my faith, and I ended up. I, w- I never would have imagined ever leaving it. I thought it was the absolute truth, and so I went to the point um, of moving to China first, learning Mandarin so that I could try to convert Chinese people. And I moved to China to do missionary work there. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that in China, proselytizing, preaching, is obviously illegal. And even my religion, the Jehovah's Witnesses, are illegal in China. So going there meant that I was you know, possibly in some danger. Uh, but for a foreigner, the danger is probably the most these days that you would get kicked out of the country. Um, but that I would have to... You know, I didn't realize this at the time, but what the consequence of moving to China was that I would start practicing my faith in very different ways. Because as a witness back home in America or Canada, you have a very um, busy life that revolves around the community, the Kingdom Hall, which is their version of a church. Um, you go to five meetings a week. Uh, you preach every day that you have free time. You, when you're not preaching, you're studying and preparing for the meetings, doing Bible reading and studying, reading the Jehovah's Witness publications. And then uh, after, you know, all of that's done, you still might hang out with some other Jehovah's Witnesses for your leisure time. So essentially, you don't have much time to yourself and all of your time is spent around this hub, around this hub of belief. So when I went to China... It was all different. It was very secretive. There were not very many Jehovah's Witnesses there, and we didn't have a kingdom hall. We just met in secret locations, which changed every week, and we only met once a week. So suddenly, I had gone from having almost every minute of my time occupied with this preaching work and learning about, you know, the Bible and being with my community of people to being more isolated um, I was with my husband at the time, and we would just wake up in the morning and decide how we were going to preach that day. Um, we would go to a meeting only once a week. That just left, like, vast swaths of time to fill, which was something I had never experienced before. The secondary part was that the preaching work itself, of course, couldn't be done in the way that we did it at home. We had to do it uh, in this sort of informal fashion, where we would first make friends with someone before we ever brought up our true intentions, which was to convert them. Uh, and the reason for this was that uh, you wanted to make sure the person wasn't, you know, a Communist Party member or that they worked, didn't work for the government and would maybe turn you in. Uh, and the byproduct of all of that was that you ended up forming kind of close relationships with people before you ever launched into your actual premise of the friendship. And I had never really gotten to know what we called worldly people very well because we were taught to kind of 
fear-wielding people, keep them at arm's length. Um, so this was a new experience for me. I was meeting people that didn't have the same beliefs as me. And in fact, I was in a completely different culture, probably one of the most polar opposite cultures to my own, the East mm-hmm. versus West. Um, right. That I, I, you know, it was, everything was suddenly, my whole life was sort of upended and I felt almost disoriented at times. It it stood out in the book that in a way, um, a bit of a um, fomenting rebellion led you in that direction because you were talking about being quite unhappy with your husband and trying to figure out a way to, you know, if you were going to be with them for an entire lifetime mm-hmm. because divorce isn't allowed, you had to make your life interesting in a way that's how I that's how I that's uh, exactly incorporated <laughs> yes. it and so you did exactly. what is quite a rebellious thing let's go to Shanghai you know <laughs> and you went to quite great lengths in terms of learning a different language and uh, so there was a seed wasn't there of of you going in a little different direction but not as different as it ended up being I understand yeah um, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't have thought, thought of it as rebellious at the time because, you know, I was actually becoming like the pinnacle of what a Jehovah's Witness should be of like self-sacrifice purportedly. <laughs> but right. I do think that deep, deep down, I wanted to mix things up. I just, I, I mean, I, I was tired of the life that I had to some degree in Canada, which is where I'm from. And um, this seemed like a good way to, you know, on the one hand, do what God wanted me to do on a deeper level and a more, you know, to a comprehensive level, but then also fulfill some personal desire for adventure. <laughs> uh-huh. You kind of snuck it in there. And, and I don't totally. get the impression of your, of your husband as a particularly adventurous person. And so, no, was, not in the same way, no. And but he was know, also the kind of person that would let me come up with these ideas and could be, I could convince him to do stuff, basically. <laughs> which, which is also a little bit of a turning, turning of the religion on its head. I know the, the man oh. in, in a marriage in that religion is, you know, the head of everything. Um, yeah. But, but nonetheless, you had your influences, yes. <laughs> Definitely, and I mean. I was not the most submissive Jehovah's Witness woman. <laughs> she, she said in confessional example. tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, from, from having talked with people, for instance, I had a client once who had been raised Mormon, and he came to therapy uh, to grieve leaving that faith because that it was like an uh, an enveloping presence around him that made him feel safe and secure and, uh, you know, uh, as if yeah. the world made sense. And suddenly he didn't have that anymore. And I, I recognize that in you, that suddenly being without everything in your beliefs and in your surrounding community that's made life sensible uh, and predictable to have that suddenly gone is is quite a drop in the off the cliff, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's it took a long time. What happened was that I when I started to feel that I had to leave my religion, I, I it was only like ten percent of it that I thought was I had come to realize was not true, and even some of it I had come to realize was not moral or right. 
but that's enough if you're the kind of person I am. If it's supposed to be ironclad and 10% isn't true, it questions everything, doesn't it? Exactly. When you're told you have the absolute truth and that this is the only truth, and then you kind of realize, wait a minute, this isn't adding up, um, and it might even be wrong, you know, you can't keep the rest of the 90% and just go along. At least I couldn't. So when I left, I... I mean, you know, people instantly cut me off because that is what they're taught to do if somebody has any doubts to keep the purity of the carnation. Um, but, you know, I still sort of was like, geez, like, am I going to, I think I'm going to die at Armageddon um, because, like, Armageddon's definitely coming, you know. I was convinced. <laughs> that took all longer to let go of, huh? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then also it was just the answers, as you say, like, I was, from a very young age, as a child, a really deep sort of, I don't know, you could call it deep thinker or you could call it neurotic, but (laughs) I used to think about stuff like this a lot, like more than I think the average kid. And it might have been because I was in this religion that was talking about the apocalypse all the time. Um, But I I really did question things about life and I, I felt very spiritual. And I loved that I had this place where I could get all the answers. It was a really comforting thing. And I had a family that was dysfunctional in ways. And, you know, this religion, the belief system made me feel so safe as it did for your Mormon client. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange that. That's, that's uh, what makes people kind of extra vulnerable. And it's time for a break. Can we come t- back to that when, sure. when we return? Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and all of that. There's also a link to my novel and Ocean Between Them. To find Amber Scora, you can go to Amber Scora, that's S-C-O-R-A-H dot com. Be back soon. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Amber Scora about her book, Leaving the Witness, and and we'll be also talking later about what came after the book. Um, so, Amber, before the break, you started talking about kind of the dis- dysfunction in your family and how that maybe led you in the direction of of deep thinking and wanting this religion to be, to give you answers, would that be fair to say? Uh, and I, yeah, and I, I was, think it, I, yeah, I was so young that it wasn't a conscious thing. But you know, a child that you know is in a somewhat chaotic background. I mean, it wasn't that my family was super chaotic, but there were things that were not healthy. Um, I think a child just naturally gravitates if someone's offering them this place of love and safety. You know, you, it's very easy for you to become attached to it. And you don't have the kind of judgment or wisdom to evaluate whether this is really, like, the right place for you or whether this love is actual love or if it's conditional on your dependence on a group. But for a child, this is, you know, it's very easy to teach children. I mean, I have a three-year-old now, and I see how she would believe almost anything I told her. <laughs> yes. So that was sort of the situation that I, that I found myself in. And when you add the, you know, obviously uh, there's there's a sense in which you ended up exploring the religion as having some cult-like qualities. And what I consider most central to a cult is no dissension, no dissension allowed, no difference of opinion allowed. Yeah. And so that that does qualify, and kids will do anything to be in, in a way, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and like, then also putting, when the consequence of, like, when you say not allowed, so if you cross that line, then what is the consequence? Well, the consequence is losing your entire world. I think that also indicates that there is something harmful there. Because, you know, people can lose faith for any number of reasons, but in most religions... Losing your faith does not equal losing your parent or your own child, as it does with a number of Jehovah's I know that left when they were older. Their own children who they raised in the faith won't speak to them. So that, you know, I think the word cult is a very charged word, and I think different people have, you know, different sort of emotional responses to it. But 
ultimately, if you look at um, whether a religion or a group could be non-religious as well, like, what is the manifestation, like, in people's lives? Like, can you leave, as you say? You know, what are the consequences if you don't believe? Um, do they control information, which is something else is a big thing in the Jehovah's Witnesses? Because there's a lot of information out in the world now on the Internet that can kind of disprove a lot of things you're being taught as a Jehovah's Witness. But literally, we policed ourselves. I never looked. You know, if I had seen this book, Leaving the Witness, and I was like, oh, in a library, like, this looks like a bookstore, looks like a nice book. If I saw it was written by someone who was a Jehovah's Witness, I would just, like, immediately put it down and try to, like, erase it from my mind because we were taught to fear this this kind of apostate, they called it, literature or articles, this type of stuff. Yes, th- this is why I said cult-like because I mm-hmm. I didn't want to step too too far into, but but yeah. that sense of um, it's all or nothing. You believe everything yeah. or you're out. <laughs> you know, is is exactly. quite stark. Uh, so yeah. so then really I'd love for you to share this uh, part of your book, which is how you started coming to terms with leaving, uh, and. And realizing you might not end up being as happy as you were when you had that ironclad faith. Would you share that part of your book? Yeah, I'd love to. So just to set the scene a bit, this passage comes from, I've already left my marriage and I've already left the religion. And my friends all think that I, they consider me an apostate, as I mentioned. So uh, a person who believed and then didn't believe left. And to give a more graphic illustration of how my friends might have felt about me. Um, Basically in our publications or at the meetings, when they talk about an apostate, being apostate is worse than being a murderer or a child abuser because it's the only sin for which God cannot forgive in our world, that worldview. So um, a murderer or child abuser could repent, but an apostate, you were too far gone. So it was weird. It was weird to embody that identity, especially when I, you know, it happened overnight and I was also like, suddenly lost to everyone and I was like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think I'm that evil though. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, so here I am now, I'm in Shanghai and uh, everyone has shunned me and I'm sort of walking the street contemplating life. <laughs> so um, I say, I'll start here. I thought about whether I was happy. Had I been happier before I left my religion or now? I thought that I might have been happier then. See, I could hear my old witness friends saying, it was easier then. And I was not unhappy now. Is happiness the currency of a life? That kind of happiness had been like a salve that shielded me from some of what it is to be human. Of course, it is also human to crave happiness. And the easiest way to achieve it is through self-deception. It is also human to be lazy. We didn't like the world we were living in, so we made up a new one. The illustrators of our books gave us an image for it, and that made it even more true. We put cuddly pandas in it, took away from it all the kinds of people we didn't like, dressed everyone up in the clothing our leaders found acceptable, and put smiles on their faces. We imagined our houses built on cliffs overlooking the ocean in paradise, and our happy families and safe lives. We took every problem in the world and found a way to neutralize it, to abdicate responsibility for any of it. If happiness is an absence of angst, then yes, I had happiness. 
Another less obvious road to happiness, I had noticed, seemed to be a relative of suffering. And though I had not wanted all this suffering, all of this loss, it was surprising to me that this suffering had a byproduct. The presence of pain had somehow bred me into becoming a more compassionate, just creature. Having lost all expectations as to what should happen or how people must be, every tiny experience or thing or person was beautiful for what it was. Not immediately, but slowly, this suffering had bred thankfulness, appreciation for the things of the earth that go unnoticed when one is blithely right. It had produced the opposite of unhappiness in me, though I had been unhappy at times. It was generative, creating in me a a deeper, more thankful nature. Gratitude was a different breed of happiness. It felt less happy in general, but was specific and resonant and compassionate in a way that felt like it mattered more, because it was real. In fact, that was how life felt now. Shorter, but like it mattered more. That just, <laughs> that just captures so much to me about um, what, what my periods of deepest grief have brought. Uh, yeah. a, a deepening of myself as a person and how I look at the world and how I look at other people um, uh, really captures that beautifully. I, I, I in an article... Before, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was also just thinking of adding to that just in the sense that I remember at the time, like, I think when, even when I've gone through breakups or like, this was like an extreme version of a breakup. It was like a breakup with everyone I knew. (laughs) Um, I've I've often really, yeah, I've often really felt like, you know, in the moment, it can feel like you've lost everything when you've lost someone you love, whether it's death or breakups or otherwise. Um, But what I have noticed that anytime I've been through this kind of a loss is that it's, the one time that you're forced to suddenly realize that you do have relationships with other things in your life besides people. And every time I've gone through something like this, which has been a few times actually, <laughs> um, I've started to notice like my relationship with nature. Like I become extremely attuned to the physical world around me and even like kind of like the spiritual world around me. And I don't mean that in a religious context. I just mean it yes. in like the things we can't see, but we can experience. And even our relationships with ourselves, which this passage is kind of me doing. Like, I'm starting to have a dialogue with myself instead of with my religion or the leaders of my religion or my, my friends or my family. So I think that well, that it, is sort of this multidimensional thing that you can experience in the midst of something so terrible. Absolutely. And, and the way in which uh, I think you're also talking about the way in which... Uh, Grief creates a kind of an identity crisis where we redefine ourselves, where we become different. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that's powerful. That's uh, you maybe more than most had to redefine everything about yourself because this thing that was at the core of it was no longer there. Um, mm-hmm. In a in a New York Times article you wrote uh this is a little bit of a fast forward, but uh, 
You say, in classical mythology and literature, seven years is an appropriate period of mourning. Maybe that was why the desire to create life began to gnaw at me. My grief over the loss of my belief system had run its course. So this is seven years you're talking about. And I was renewed, full of love for life, which felt even more precious now that I knew it would not go on forever. I, 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 I have somehow never run across that seven years of of mourning but it really speaks to me because um i used to say it takes seven years for all the cells in your body to know that something is is gone because it takes that long to regenerate all your cells as i understand the science um so that made that timing made sense to me that you would be in a very different place in seven years but that that was probably uh, a long seven years, a long process, yes? Yeah, and I think that point is really interesting in the sense that whenever, because uh, I think a lot about what is truth, but whenever there's a truth that comes from disparate places, for example, like classical mythology and science, and they're like, hey, they both kind of agree that there's some sort of a cycle about seven years. <laughs> I think that that kind of points to that, hey, it might be true. <laughs> it might be, um, there might be something to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. That's well, and, I got distracted by that. <laughs> well, and but look at what, what culture does. I mean, we're, we're lucky. It's, it's a little more likely that people have this sort of year of grief thing in their heads now than than even when my wife died in 1995. Um, you know, yeah. people will give you a few more minutes, but still not very long. And we usually have to return to work yeah. very fast. You know, uh, mm-hmm. that reality is not ca- taken into account for sure. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I think, pe- I think people are uncomfortable with grief. And so they prefer to pretend that it's something that's very tidy that you can just take a week's bereavement leave and be done with or something. Else. Be done with. And so then at that point, you had a baby. Yeah. Can you can you share the story of Carl? So yeah, that the listeners so I know am, kind of... Sorry? Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, had, I um, got pregnant, um, and I was, you know, I had never thought about having children when I was a Jehovah's Witness because I thought the world was ending and I thought, oh, it's um, better to actually have children in a paradise than in this old world, you know? Mm. So I, um, I was, when I I had him, I didn't really know what to expect. And I, you know, I, by this point, I didn't have any family, like much family left. My brother never became a Jehovah's, thankfully, but um, I, I was, you know, had lived a long time and I sort of made a friend family, but I didn't have any flesh and blood around me very often. And so when my, when I had my son, it was just the most transcendent experience because here all of a sudden I had this little being that had the chin of my father, you know, who had, my father had died when I was 18. And he um, was just this little miracle that I, you know, couldn't, comprehend and also it was a really spiritual experience you know I had already left my religion a number of years and I wasn't religious anymore and you know I didn't really know what I believed but when I looked at the child I was like oh I can't believe that there's nothing because this is too incredible <laughs> um so anyway it was wonderful um I stayed at home with him every day and every minute of the day for three months and three weeks and then my maternity leave was up and I had to go back to work and I asked my 
company whether I could just extend it, even get an unpaid maternity leave for another month or something because I just didn't want to leave him yet. And they said no, that I would have to quit because the policy had ended. Um, and quitting was one thing. Um, it had taken me a long time after leaving the witnesses to get to a point of stability because I you know, didn't have a degree and I didn't have a lot of job skills. And I finally had this half-decent job, not great, but okay. So I was worried to quit. And then also my dog gave our family their health insurance, our health insurance. And so quitting would also mean that, you know, suddenly my son might not have health insurance. So that was also a factor. So ultimately weighing everything, my partner and I decided it, it was probably better that I went back to work and that we found a daycare that was nearby the, my, my job, one that was recommended. We found one very highly regarded by some friends who had had children there and, and, and also a colleague of mine at work had had her children there. And because it was close to my office, I could go back on my breaks and breastfeed him. Um, so the first day we dropped him off and um, I went to work for the morning and two, maybe it was like two and a half hours later, I ran back to the daycare on my lunch because I was so excited to see him. And when I walked in the door, I didn't know anything was wrong because it had all just happened. But I walked through the door of the daycare and saw my son was unconscious and the daycare owner was performing CPR on him. So she had put him down for a nap and then didn't check on him uh, for like an hour and a half. And when she went back to go wake him up because she knew I was coming to breastfeed, he, his lips were blue. So no one ever discovered, understood what the cause of his death was. Autopsies did not reveal anything. I mean, he was very robust and a very healthy child. Um, of all the things I worried about with him, I mean, I was worried about leaving him, but I never imagined that something like right. this could happen because he was so healthy and just, you know, it's, yeah, and so really. and so into this uh, new world of more questions than answers comes this, you know, absolutely um, incomprehensible loss, and yeah. um, obviously there's a lot to say about that, um, but it's it's about time for another break. When we get back, I I want to talk about how. You then grieved without the, uh, you know, you talk a lot about how you might grieve with Jehovah's Witness beliefs in your mm-hmm. pocket. Uh, I, I just have to think it was totally different without those beliefs. And uh, yeah. let's, let's come back to that after the break. Listeners, it's time for our second break, and you can go find me at weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Amber Scora, you can go to amberscora, S-C-O-R-A-H.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Amber Scora, author of Leaving the Witness. And Amber, right before the break... Uh, we were talking about your son Carl and him dying on the first day he ever went to to childcare, which um, is incomprehensible. Uh, you were saying in the break, maybe even to you sometimes, that that yeah. actually happened. Yeah, it's a strange effect. Like, I mean, I the grief gnaws at me every day, obviously, but there'll be moments where I just have this sort of like dissociative feeling like that I can't even believe it happened, that, that something so terrible could happen. I mean, it's one thing for your, a child to die, but how could they die? Like the, the first time I walked away from him, like he couldn't survive, like in the guilt and the horror of it all. Um, and there's a very strange thing that happens to me is that I never really feel, feel it as much, like the empathy of how horrible it is as when I'm talking to another person who will be talking to me about Carl or my story and they will begin to well up and their compassion. I will see through their eyes, like reflecting back to me, the horror, like how awful it is. It's, you know, it's often people who have their own children and they feel so much empathy and compassion. And it's like, you know, I mean, I feel sick about it all the time, but somehow seeing it in someone else reflects it back to me in this way that even reminds me even more of the enormity of it. It's really a strange thing. But I think a lot of times, maybe, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but with 
sudden tragedies like this, I can imagine it must happen to people a lot in the sense that it's hard for you to even comprehend it yourself. I understand the grief, but the actual possibility that something so horrible could happen is sometimes still hard for me to wrap my mind around. And I have to say, having had a lot of different losses in my life, very significant, uh, you know, my my wife, my parents, friends, um, the ones that are harder to imagine are the ones that I haven't experienced. Um, you know, there, there's, there's something, grief is about experience, isn't it? (laughs) But relevant to what we've been talking about this whole, um, this whole interview, you now have what many say is the worst possible loss, uh, the loss of a child. Mm -hmm. I I don't think we can compare, but many people do say that without the... Without the faith that would have given you some context for that, or um, w- how did you then place your grief? You know, how did you experience it? Um, not having answers, really. Well, first of all, I think this is an interesting point because I now know a number of people who have lost infants and children in death, and some of them were religious when it happened. And I don't know anyone who goes through the loss of a child whose faith isn't shaken. I think it's hard for even a religious person, even the most faith, strong in faith person to, uh, to work this out, like to understand or have answers as to why a child, an innocent child is healthy, would die or could die. So yes. there's that. So I, I don't even know that like belief systems even help when the devastation is that complete. However, I think like as you get, you know, as time marches on, I can imagine that if I were a Jehovah's Witness now, I would, you know, essentially delude myself into thinking that I would see my son again in this paradise we believed in. And for me now, it's like, some people think like, oh, are you inclined to go back or like to go back? to religion so that you can find some sort of comfort. But for me, the reality was, is that I thought I had all the answers. And when you find out the answers are wrong, I mean, sure, it was very meaningful and comforting to have all the answers, but if the answers aren't true, well, it's not very meaningful either. So Mm. what I had to do is try to find meaning like in the midst of it. Essentially for me, I think my, when my father died and I was religious then it was, you never really experienced maybe the full measure of, the feelings of grief in the same way because you have this escape. And um, now I don't have any escape. So it's one of these things where if you can't escape it, well, what do you have to do? You have to just go through it. There's no way around it. So that's And so in a way, here. leaving Jehovah's Witness uh, left you with, with that as a container that you have to experience. That experience is, is the way through. Did I just hear you well, right like on someone, that? Yeah, it's like, you know what, someone put it very succinctly to me. Um, when I asked, many people reached out to me after Carl died, and people I didn't know even. And one person, a lot of people said things that were not comforting. Yes. But someone <laughs> said something to me that was really, 
Yeah, but something that someone said to me was very helpful was they said they had gone through a stillbirth. So on some level, they understood, although she acknowledged straight away that she understood that there was no comparing. Like, it's not that she's comparing. But she said, I found one thing is that in life, there is no way around difficult feelings. There's only a way through. And that actually helped me a lot because I felt for my own self anyways, like this religious aspect was a way around difficult feelings. But mm. now I realize that the true way to deal with something is to go through it. And it may feel awful, but the one way that you get through it is by marching through the grief, um, which is what I had to do. I mean, I didn't have a choice. And I mean, I still am. I don't, when it's a child, you, you're walking in lockstep with a child that no one can see. Like every day of my life, I know when people see me walking on the street and don't know that I have a child that should be four. Um, my daughter doesn't have a brother. You know, I don't know what he would have looked like. This is something you can't get over. It's one thing when a parent dies or an adult because they've already grown up. Like this, this process has right. happened and they are who they are. But with a child, you'll never know who they were. And they were someone, you know, they, they are were. someone somehow. So, you, you wrote you know, a subsequent New York Times article called Having a Child After Losing a Child. And this yeah. little paragraph really stood out to me. You said, you cannot fast forward through grief to get to the other side. There's no other side when it's your child. Yeah. Just what we're talking about. You live your life on a yeah. slow march and step with the life he did not live, holding on to a child no one can see. I look at his sister who now wears the big kid winter jacket I had bought for him on sale and imagine him now a few inches taller than her. After all, he's only 15 months older. I see them giggling, fighting, playing together. I must find somehow the creativity and the courage to conjure him up, to recreate him over and over each day because my mind won't not. I thought that was very Mm -hmm. beautiful. My mind won't not. Uh, It's it's familiar to me. Yeah, uh, and and even, um, I have to say, even with, you know, the loss of, of my wife, who was 45 when she died, there is a recreation process that goes on even with her. That was familiar yeah. to me, where I'll see someone who's walks like her or mo- mm. looks like her a little bit, and, and she is then present for me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that that's like something, there's something to that in the sense that I, I, this is something I've come to a conclusion of lately. It's just that, you know, you think about the loss of a physical person and I, 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 you know, it is complete devastation. You can't talk to them. You can't hug them. You can't be near them. But then I think it's, there's a tendency for us to sort of like minimize because we're, we're physical beings, but you, there are things we still have. As you say, you remember her walk. You remember her voice. Um, you have memories with, of her that you can access at any time. And that's sort of what has happened with my son is that I've tried very hard to focus on what I do have of him. Uh, even with children, you know, science uh, recently discovered that after you've been pregnant with a child, their DNA is in your blood basically for the rest of your life. So while mm-hmm. I can't that having that knowledge that there's some part of Carl in me I find that as comfort you know maybe it's not absolutely what I would want but like 
there are things I can remember about him. And I spent, you know, four months might seem like a very short time, but as you know, four months with a newborn is a very intense That's time. That's timeless, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Like uh, that, that it's like beginning time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I think over time, I wasn't able to do this at the beginning, but with a few years out, I've started to try to shift my focus again, kind of similar to what we talked about before, and that you lose the physical person, and that can feel like everything. But it almost folks you to look at your relationship with the rest of the person, the things that were not physical. You know, like, speaking of your wife, like, the love you had between you, like, that still is, that's still real, even if they're not here. I think you said that very well in, in that same article. I will never know who my child would have been, but I know his love. If there is a God, this is what he gave me. That, that really resonated for me. That, uh, yeah, that experience people, of connection with another being yeah. is very compelling beyond their breathing. Yeah. Uh, it's very real beyond their breathing. Yes? Yeah, exactly. And so then how, obviously, the uh, having experienced that before your daughter was born impacts your relationship with her in, in various ways, I'm sure. Um, I, I read somewhere about, I, I don't remember which place, about... Um, grappling with how to keep him in her life, how to talk about him with her being that she's small and, you know, at whatever stage of development she is. How does that, uh, how does that happen for you? How how do you navigate that? Well, it's so hard. Like now I have, you know, I have pictures of Carl. I talk about Carl sometimes with her, but she, you know, she's three, she just turned three. So it's still pretty abstract to her. Um, but the, my overarching principle, I'm the kind of person that I deal better with having an overarching principle rather than trying to, I get too anxious trying to micromanage every situation, you know, cause you don't know what's going to come up. But my overarching principle is that when I, when Carl died, I got a lot of letters from all kinds of people, many beautiful letters. And some of the letters were from people whose parents had lost children, for, which is to say that they had lost their siblings. So they would be like my daughter. Yes. And I got a couple letters from people who said that when their sibling died, which was often before they were born, most of these siblings were, came after their, their sibling died. They said that in the, fam- the families where the parents didn't talk about it and tried to pretend it didn't happen, and obviously I can understand as a parent, this is an impulse because you want to save your child from the pain. But in fact, that backfired, and these people said that they grew up just haunted and wanted to know, and there was like this dark tragedy that they couldn't talk about, and it really affected them. Whereas I got letters from a couple of other people who had the same situation and said that their parents had included the child and even like some of them in family celebration, like they had these ways of bringing the child who was gone into the child who existed live. And they said that it was uh, universally, it was much better to have that approach. So uh, as much as I understand as an adult, the impulse to protect your child, I also now understand that you're actually not protecting them by not talking about it, by hiding it, you know? I never have people come into my office and say, 
uh, I lost my parent, sibling, whatever, as a child, and we talked about it all the time, and I'm here to work it out. I never have that. I have people come and say no one would talk about it. Um, From the day that they died, you know, they they were never mentioned again. And there's this cloudy presence that's bigger than the actual thing, if that makes sense. So I I want to really affirm what you're saying, that... um, that for one thing that children can very much handle it <laughs> you know yeah. what what's hard to handle yeah. is kind of a secret uh yeah. you know b- behind the curtain feeling cuz then they can't process their own feelings about it you're not showing them the way you know and it makes it seem secondarily like grief is unmanageable don't touch yeah. that you know sure <laughs> you so won't true, ever be yeah. able to get through that but I also think yeah. maybe it affects you as a parent that if you're able to keep him uh, in front of the curtain, not behind, I imagine that leads to a greater presence in you. You're not avoiding anything. Yeah. I really want to thank you for being here today. It's been it's been really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And maybe we can have a part two one day. <laughs> that would be wonderful. That That would be wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Bye. You can find Amber Scora at amberscora.com. Next week, I'll have Anne Grady. We'll be talking about her two books, Strong Enough, Choosing Courage, Resilience, and Triumph, and 52 Strategies for Life, Love, and Work. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.